Please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53, although we will begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 52. That's really where the context begins. We'll begin at 52.13 and we'll read through the end of chapter 53. Isaiah, I want to say the gospel of Isaiah, beginning chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. <clears throat> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow as a symbol of humility before your greatness, your grandeur, your majesty, and your beauty. We have confessed our sins to you, and we 
recognize that we have no right in ourselves to come before you and expect your grace. And yet, because you are full of grace, you extend that to us day by day and week by week. And as we come now to study your holy word, we ask you to speak to us. May your grace increase to us. Give us understanding. Glorify yourself. Build up our faith. For any who don't have faith, grant it to them as they hear of Christ and his sacrifice. Bless this time by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We will be centering our attention on verse 10 of chapter 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The ESV, which I've just read to you, translates the words properly and accurately. But it chooses an English term that softens the blow of the message of the prophet Isaiah. Let me read this verse to you in a couple of other translations. Maybe you can look at the ESV as I read these. And they will give you a sense of how others translate it. I prefer the other translation. The authorized version, the 1611 King James, and the New King James Version render it this way. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The beginning and the end of the verse. The New American Standard Bible translates verse 10 Like this, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And at the end of the verse, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Hebrew verb that is employed by the prophet Isaiah here clearly carries the sense of will or purpose, but it does so in the context of something that pleases or delights. And both of these ideas are present here in verse 10, both at the beginning and at the end of the verse. It's slightly more startling to read these words like this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. These are startling words. And if they were found anywhere else in literature, They would shock our deepest sensitivities. Just change the nouns and the pronouns slightly and listen to these sentences. It pleased the teacher to bruise the student. It pleased the husband to bruise his wife. It pleased the policeman to bruise the citizen. It pleased the father to bruise his child. Those sentences would raise our anger and our sensitivities take over and we want to help the abused victim and rightly so. It would be right for us to intercede and come to the rescue of someone who is harmed in that way. And yet our text says... It pleased the Lord 
to bruise him, to crush him. Here in the most famous of the servant passages of the prophet Isaiah, the prophet wants us to contemplate the servant as the Lord's servant. Think with me about the context. We've just read from 52.13 through the end of chapter 53. One Puritan author who wrote a, a commentary on this passage called it Isaiah's crucifix. Or he might have said Isaiah's crucifix since he was British, but you get the same idea. This passage is a vivid description of the brutal sufferings of the servant. And the language that describes his sorrows is graphic and it is frequent. Just pull out these words from the chapter. Despised, rejected, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes, oppressed, slaughter, judgment, cut off, Offering, put to grief, anguish, poured out. I wonder, are we so familiar with Isaiah chapter 53 that we're desensitized to these words? Do you hear them and comprehend the horror of them as they cascade down upon your mind, stripped of the context, and simply read as a long series of, of brutal words. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now we've said that this phrase conveys two things in the Hebrew language. Plan or purpose, hence the ESV rendering, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But we've also said that this takes place in the context of pleasure. We need to think through each part of the sense of this word, this phrase. Let's think first about plan. The prophet, in choosing this word at the beginning and at the end of verse 10, sets the sufferings of the servant into an eternal context. Now what we need to do is just look back a little bit in the writings of the prophet Isaiah to see how he works his way through the servant songs and presents to us the eternal purpose of God. So put a marker here in your Bible and turn back to chapter 42, which is the first time that we encounter uh, the Lord's servant in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. And uh, immediately in verse 1, we encounter similar language because we have that word, behold. It's as if the Lord through the prophet is calling us to look, to contemplate this one and consider him. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I will tell of them. Here the Lord makes a claim to sovereignty. He's the one who's created the heavens and the earth and who continues to give them life, who watches over all of the people on the earth. He makes this claim and then he says that the suffering servant will come and the Lord declares what his purpose is. His purpose is that the servant will come in order to save people. This is the eternal purpose of God. This is the intention of God. Flip over a few pages to chapter 46, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 46. Remember this. Whenever we see that in the scripture, we ought to take it seriously and put it in our minds. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Here we have in each of these texts, uh, the same word is employed and the sense of the Lord, his will and his purpose coming to accomplish that which he uh, desires to do. It pleased the Lord. It was the will of the Lord, the covenant name for God. The eternal faithful God purposes to accomplish to accomplish these things. It is his purpose, it is his will, it is his pleasure, and will is understood in that way. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. You see, Isaiah firmly states to us that the sufferings of the servant, these things that are described to us all throughout chapter 53, are the great activity of this eternal purpose of God. God in eternity or from eternity determines that this is what he will do. In fact, the apostolic preachers, when they proclaim the gospel, pick up on this same theme. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is explaining to the Jews who are present that the, the strange things that are happening before them are not the result of drunkenness, but rather the purpose of God, he says, this Jesus, whom you crucified, was delivered up according to the eternal, the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He wasn't someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, facing his enemies who were able to entrap him and snare him and bring him to death. But rather, all of the events that took place came as a result of the eternal purpose of God. He came for this purpose. It was the will of God. The apostolic preachers saw the Lord's purpose in the death of Christ his son. 
We preach that and we proclaim it. He was the Lamb of God who was slain from the beginning of the world, slain from all eternity. So when we read this text, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. We can say, yes, of course, okay, I understand. But the word has another sense that it carries with it. And that is the sense of pleasure. It is the will of the Lord. It pleased the Lord. And this one is much more difficult, but we must face it head on. Some liberal theologians have come to a text like this and have said that the Old Testament and even the Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement is the equivalent of divine child abuse. They portray texts like this as if God the Father in heaven is gleefully sending his wrath down upon his son while his son endures to the depths of his soul the pangs of the wrath of God. And so the, the doctrine of Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement is rejected on that basis. Is that right? Well, of course, it's not right at all. We must never fall prey to that idea. But what do we say? How do we read verse 10? What do we say when we encounter the fact that legitimately the Hebrew word carries the sense of will that accomplishes one's pleasure or delight? What do we say? Well, there are several things that we need to notice about the text. And the rest of verse 10 helps us enormously. Because the rest of verse 10 opens up for us the nature of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It was, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. First off, we know that he was a sin offering. And in the context, we are told that the sin offering is made not because, pardon me, not because of his own sin, but rather that he is a sin offering on behalf of others. Look back at verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's wrath against sin cannot simply be wished away. God himself could not simply decree that sin could be forgiven. His wrath against sin requires a sacrifice. And we are not able to provide to the Lord the sacrifice that is suitable for our sins. So he must provide a sacrifice. And he comes as that sin offering on our behalf in order that the wrath of God may be satisfied. We're told in verse 10 that he makes his soul an offering for guilt, seeing his offspring. He shall see his offspring, his seed. He sees his accomplishment according to the eternal purpose of God, which pleases God as a means of bringing his people the forgiveness of sins. Notice again verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The pronouns are interesting there, aren't they? He and us. 
He, the Holy One. He, the Righteous One. He, the Incarnate Son of God. Us, our, we the transgressors, we the sinners. He stood in our place, intentionally, purposefully, so that his elect people might receive eternal forgiveness, that the wrath of God might be turned away from us. This is why he offers himself. We see, likewise, in verse 10, he shall prolong his days. Even though this crushing, this bruising, this offering is made on our behalf, it's not the end. There is no fear of death in him because resurrection and ascension is promised to him. He will prolong his days. Notice verse 12. Therefore, as a result, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Because of what he did, I will make him great. He will prolong his days. And we're told at the end of verse 10 that the pleasure, the will of the Lord prospers in his hands, That is, all that he accomplishes is everything that the Lord sends him to do. You see, when we read these words, Crossan, John Dominic Crossan and others who make this charge of divine child abuse completely ignore the fact that this is the eternal purpose of God, not a temporal purpose of God. To read the text as if it's divine child abuse is to read it as if this happens at the moment. That up until this point, the words of Isaiah 42, where we read that the Lord is delighted in his servant, that delight continues until the moment of his sacrifice when the wrath of God is poured out upon him and God gleefully pours out that wrath as if God is temporal and things change. That's not the case at all. This is an eternal purpose of God, not a sudden response to the events of the cross. That is, from eternity, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Not momentarily, not in the event, but from eternity. Which, of course, then tells us something about the Trinitarian nature of what's happening here. His death which is central to the passage, is the means of bringing the eternal saving purpose of God into history. It is the means by which God's eternal saving purpose is accomplished and where the wrath of the Lord is satisfied. And so it is said of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, citing Psalm 40, I delight to do your will, your purpose, your pleasure, O my God. Now, once we begin to think about this in eternal terms, we need to remember the Trinitarian nature of the purposes of God. The natural inclination that we have on reading this passage is to separate the persons, as if the Father acts upon the Son, one acts upon the other. But the reality is, of the Bible and of Christian theology is that along with the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, the persons of the Trinity act together. So we must say that it is as much the pleasure of the second person of the Trinity to suffer God's wrath 
as it is the first person, the Father, or the third person, the Son. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Spirit does. This is the doctrine of inseparable actions. You may never have even heard that term before. But God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit always work together in the purpose of accomplishing redemption. So when we read these words, it, was the, it pleased the Lord, the covenant name of God, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's a Trinitarian phrase. God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit determined that it was necessary for the Son to endure the wrath of God in order that we might be saved. We need to think about this in terms of the doctrine of who Christ is. Christ is one person with two natures. He is divine and he is human. His divine nature from eternity, along with the Father and the Spirit, purpose to atone for sins, purpose to propitiate righteous wrath, purpose to redeem his people by means of suffering of the God-man. He knew before he became incarnate that he would suffer. He knew that he would endure these things. And he gladly and freely took them upon himself. It pleased the second person of the Trinity to bruise him. Though he himself is the one who was bruised. It pleased him to do this. He himself, the Holy Trinity... Father, Son, and Spirit is glad to bring salvation to his people, to satisfy the demands of justice, to bring our redemption, because there was no one to come to our aid. We may want to intervene in human terms when we see terrible abuse taking place. There was no one else to intervene, and so God intervened on our behalf. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Lord crushed, the Lord bruised his beloved son so that we might be healed. Think about this with me for a moment. Have you ever been bruised? Have you ever been abused, wounded, crushed, harmed by someone who should love you? You know, this text helps us to understand that our Savior knows and he recognizes and he's able to comfort and help us in the midst of our bruising because he endured this as the God-man on our behalf. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that he is our high priest who is able to represent us to God, and who is able to enter into all of the realities of human life. In his suffering, he knows what it is for us to suffer. And I might say that there probably is no wounding that any of us can ever endure that will match up to the wounding of Christ our Savior. He knows. So, dear brother, dear sister, in the midst of the wounds that you bear, Go to him and know that he is able to help you. Because he said, we saw in our earlier hour, that he will never leave us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Your Savior, though you cannot see him now, your Savior loves you with an enduring, never-ending, never-diminishing love. And you can go to him and carry to him all of your wounds and your bruises and find in him comfort and help forever. But are you bruised also by your own sin? Are you bruised by the memories of what you yourself have done? I don't know your life. You don't know my life. We don't need to know each other's, but we have memories of what we ourselves have acted, how we have broken God's law. And the reality of this text is that Jesus knows as well. He knows us through and through, and he has taken that sin upon himself and satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. In fact, my sins and your sins are the cause of his bruises. That's why he endured. That's why all of these words that we saw in the context can be read and and we can feel the pressure of them because they all came true upon Jesus Christ because of my sins and because of your sins. And yet he endured. And that wrath of God that he suffered is turned away when we trust in him. We don't endure it any longer. We may continue to struggle with the memories of acts that we have committed, but we can know that God is not against us and the judge will not hold them against us. And we will not have to pay the penalty for them because Jesus Christ has done so. If you've never found forgiveness of sins, I have good news for you. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has endured the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And you, all you must do is trust in him, depend upon him, know that he has turned away God's wrath, and you will find forgiveness as you confess your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And believers, this text ought to cause us to love him all the more. As we contemplate his bruises, not, not in the, the gross sense of some of the, the, uh, the movies that have been made that, that uh, capitalize on the, the grotesque nature of his death. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But as we read the words of this text and contemplate what he endured, all of us need to remember that he took these blows so that we might be forgiven. And we have a perfect Savior who was wounded for us. See, we need to contemplate the eternal pleasure of God accomplished in the crushing, the bruising of his Son. The fact that from eternity God determined to send his Son, that his Son would endure not just the physical punishment, that was horrible, but endure what was worth the wrath of God. We need to bring this to our minds and never forget it. It is something that will energize our service. It will energize our Christian lives. It can become the constant theme of our lives. This is where our forgiveness rests because Jesus Christ offered himself so that we might find forgiveness. It pleased the Lord, to bruise him. Thanks be to God for the indescribable gift of his son, 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O oh Lord, these feeble words do not fully and accurately portray the amazing gift that you've given to us in Christ, in his sacrifice, the forgiveness that we receive, the cleansing that comes to us, because he endured physical, but even worse, spiritual sufferings, your wrath, that we might never know your wrath personally. We give you thanks. We ask you to help us to depend always upon him, to find our forgiveness and our freedom, our help in the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Write these words on our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name.